today's topic on exploration science is the non-science of the chemistry GRE requirement for graduate school admission. For the uninitiated, the GRE is a standardized test that is an admissions requirement for most graduate schools in the U.S. It is meant to supplement a student's undergraduate records, recommendations, and other qualifications for graduate level study. The idea is that it's to be used by the schools as a common measure for comparison. But how well does this actually work? To discuss this topic today, we have Dr. Anna Mapp and Dr. Ethram Brammer from the University of Michigan, alongside Dr. Aaron Doherty from the University of California, Davis. So thank you all for being here. I'm extremely excited to have this conversation with you all just to kind of get it out there. It feels like we all kind of have it in our mind that maybe the GRE may not be exactly where it's at. And so it's good to have uh, a good discussion about it. And so how I'd like this to go is that we each give a brief introduction, um, name, school, area of research, uh, and how you're connected with the topic of the GRE. And then we'll kind of slowly go through the topics. I don't want it to be like a question answer session. I'd really like it to be more of a discussion where we just have those topics uh, and hopefully they kind of guide us through. And so I can start with the introduction. Uh, as you guys already know, I've been emailing you a few times. Uh, my name is Deirdre Shorty, and I am a scientific, communi scientific communications associate at CEM and a recent graduate student uh, from the University of California, Davis. I'm a first-generation student on my mom's side, which is actually who I grew up with. Uh, and so when it came time to applying for graduate school, I had no clue about the process. And so I went online, I started figuring everything out, and I very quickly learned that it is an expensive undertaking. Um, and if it hadn't been for my family, thankfully, preparing me to you know, start building up savings beforehand, I wouldn't have been able to afford it. And I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't have a PhD. I think I would have probably just stopped there and that would have been fine, um, but that would have changed my life. So now I guess we can go on to, Anna, you can start. Sure, thank you. Um, uh, I'm Anna Mapp and I am a professor at the University of Michigan. Um, my lab focuses on uh, trying to understand how the transcriptional machinery assembles when it's going to read our genes and how it's dysregulated in disease. And we try to understand it from the standpoint of a chemist so we can develop drug-like molecules that target misregulated transcription. Um, in addition to that, I uh, am an associate dean in our graduate school, the Rackham Graduate School. And my focus area is uh, in the biological and health sciences, graduate programs in that area, as well as working closely with one of the other um, members here, Ethan Brammer, on issues of equity, um, and particularly in graduate admissions and climate. Ethan, I think that's a good transition for you to start then. Sure. Thank you so much, Deirdre, and thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak with you today. Um, my name is Ethan Brammer. Um, I currently serve as the one of the assistant deans at the Rackham Graduate School. I'm also the diversity, equity, and implementation, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion implementation lead, it's mouthful, um, at the Rackham Graduate School. Um, I'm formally trained actually as a translation scholar. So uh, I have a master's of fine arts in creative writing, um, as well as a PhD in English. 
um, and my dissertation and subsequent scholarship focuses mostly on uh, Latinx writers who may have immigrated to the United States, um, but wrote in Spanish about their American immigrant experience. And so um, elevating those marginalized voices um, so that they're heard within the context of American letters um, is kind of what I was trained to do. Um, I have been involved in higher ed leadership now for almost 20 years. Um, and so I've incorporated into kind of my scholarship and practice um, higher ed, uh, you know, student success issues. So I also, you know, do scholarship um, and teaching in higher ed leadership. Thank you so much. Okay. And last but certainly not least, Erin. Yeah. Um, my name is Erin Doherty. I am a recent um, PhD graduate from the University of California, Davis, um, in the chemistry department, recent as in like a week ago. Um, and <laughs> so uh, I am here because um, I led an initiative at uh, the departmental level to remove the GRE in our admissions process. And I don't really have any specific qualifications that made me a relevant person to do that, but sometimes someone has to step up and just be the person to take on that um, that specific initiative. And so that's what I did. Um, oh, and my research focuses on um, RNA editing. So I'm a chemical biologist. Um, and so I've essentially designed chemical modifications that help to improve these RNA editing systems for therapeutic applications. I like that. I think we should get that on a pillow or something. Sometimes it just takes someone to step up and take care of it. And I really, we all really appreciate you taking care of that at Davis. Um, clearly, we both went to UC Davis. And so Erin was um, one of my underclassmen. And so when she first joined, of course, you know, we're very friendly. She's brilliant. Um, and when I heard about them getting the GRE removed, I was like, that is a fantastic initiative. That's wonderful. I didn't even know that was an option uh, <laughs> to get that, that kind of thing started. And so as you all know, you hear me okay? Perfect. So as you all know, the topic of exploration science today is the non-science of the GRE requirement for graduate school admission. Um, the GRE is meant to be a tool uh, that graduate admission committees can rely on to supplement a student's undergraduate record. Uh, the idea is that it's supposed to be used by the schools as a common measure for comparison, but the question is how well does it actually do that? And so our first question, our thing that we'd like to discuss is what are each of your opinions on the GRE as a whole. And I guess we can start, since we started with Anna last time and we finished with Aaron, let's start with Ethram. Sure, thank you again, Deirdre. I, I think, you know, just kind of reviewing the literature and understanding the history, um, standardized testing just has a complicated history in the United States to begin with. And so, um, you know, I think, the creation of standardized tests in the United States, you know, approximately 100 years ago um, with instruments like Army Alpha really speak to some of the racialized um, roots and beginnings of standardized testing in this country and how they were normed and intentionally designed um, to be exclusionary. And, you know, even if you imagine, you know, that over the course of nearly 100 years, um, those tests have been kind of revised in a way that might obfuscate or 
um, alter in some ways the original purpose or intent, one thing that, that's undeniable is the outcomes are still the same. And so you could contribute that, you know, to uh, the differential experiences of students in K through 12 environments or, you know, the different resources. You talked, you know, uh, very eloquently about the expense of preparing. So whether it's a result of where a young person grows up, goes to school, or just the resources that their family have at hand to prepare them, the fact is that the um, outcomes are different. And when you use these kind of standardized tests um, as a way of measuring somebody's qualifications and you do it knowing that there's um, desperate outcomes, you're essentially knowing that you're biasing from the beginning your system evaluation and assessment. And so I'm not a fan. I think anybody can chime in at that point. Yeah, well, I um, thank you, Ether. I mean, I, I, mean, I <laughs> agree with everything you said. And I also want to add that the, you know, there are de now decades of studies on trying to examine the effectiveness of the GRE as a predictor uh, of, of success in graduate school as assessed by many different metrics, you know, graduate GPA, um, publications, time to degree, et cetera. And there is no convincing data saying that it works. So uh, I, uh, the, the only area in which there is some correlation, some reasonable correlation is with um, graduate GPA, who I think many of us would say, uh, who cares? <laughs> I certainly would. Um, that's just not what a PhD is about, right? Yeah, it's about, I mean, if we're talking about the sciences, it's about your, you know, your work in the lab, your ideas, your creativity, becoming an independent scholar over the course of the PhD. And so um, why use a test that's expensive for students, not accessible to all students, and doesn't seem to tell you anything about how they're going to perform in graduate school as a part of your evaluation? Um, it's just too easy for it to be misused. And I'll chime in with really very similar sentiments. Um, as someone who very recently, well, somewhat recently went through the process of applying, uh, you find that, wow, it's expensive when you're first doing it, and then it doesn't seem very relevant to what you're doing, especially when you're applying in a STEM field, um, and you're taking very general knowledge. It's like the SAT all over again, which we can talk more about the SAT, too, because that's also being reexamined and, and removed in a lot of areas as well. Um, but you find that it just at first doesn't feel relevant. It feels challenging, um, especially as someone who doesn't understand um, the process to application very well, um, I took, I think, the last GRE that you could possibly take and then still have your scores to apply that year because it's just a system that is not understood very well unless uh, you have some guidance who is part of academia already. Um, and so initially it feels um, like a barrier and then you get past it, hopefully, and then it was like, wow, that didn't really seem to do anything productive for me as um, a part of my career or as advancing myself to prepare for this graduate program. Um, and then you realize, well, in fact, that is harmful. And if you dig a little bit deeper, then you do realize, like was touched on earlier, the history of this exam um, and a lot of more recent studies showing how it is ineffective, as was touched on earlier as well. 
Um, and I think in my experience, this has been a really widely held belief by graduate students that um, it's actually not an effective measure. Um, they feel they take this exam and don't see that how well they did on that exam is reflected in um, their outcome as a graduate student. So one of the things I try to do is um, survey the department here. And I think um, I had about 81 participants and one person said that they think it was a relevant metric. And so that's like a 97% um, of the graduate students who maybe we should listen to graduate students about what prepares you for a graduate program um, really don't think that this is relevant to their student success. Exactly. And to go further in that, you, you go through and you see how irrelevant the questions or just the exam as a whole is to what you're doing as a graduate student. Um, and yet it controls so much of your graduate school application process. Like I remember when applying, we would look at schools and the idea for the GRE is to supplement my additional, like my information. It's just to have something extra on there. But a lot of schools had this this kind of hard cap of you needed at least this score to even be considered uh, for, for admissions. And you're sitting here like, okay, well, I thought this was supplemental. And so now all of this money I'm spending, I, I might need to invest even more money. Like maybe I need to take courses because they're not even going to look at my application if I don't have a certain score. And that's, that's daunting for the majority of students. It was a significant source of stress, um, we all agree that the GRE is not, it's, it's not necessarily where it's at. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. Um, but then with removal of the GRE, and Anna, this is something you pointed out really well in your uh, editorial in science, you stated that the concern for removing the GRE is that now the admissions committee will have to rely more heavily on other aspects uh, of the candidate's application. And those can similarly be correlated to um, students, you know, sex, race, socioeconomic background. And so that may not necessarily be the best thing to do after that. And so what do we do if we remove the GRE and they can't rely on that? Where do we go from there? Yeah. So um, this is a question that either of and I um, hear and talk with people about, uh, you know, a great deal. And, um, you know, the, the best answer is to really implement holistic admissions or holistic review of applications. And holistic admissions, holistic review is kind of a, uh, it, it, it's a phrase that many have heard and, and may have even heard it applied to their own admissions process. But, but it's true that um, very few uh, of us have actually been trained in real holistic review practices. Um, Ethereum and I run a workshop every year for faculty at Michigan, for example. And even in that, we see a strong desire to use holistic principles, but, um, but difficulty in implementation, because I think what we, we're naturally prone to do is, um, is to take each portion of a graduate application, GRE, GPA, transcript, research statement, letters of recommendation, as a separate entry entity and sort of rank a student based on each of those um, portions of an application. And so in that kind of practice, that's why you really worry that if something like the GRE is taken out, that faculty might use something like the prestige of the undergraduate institution that would take on an 
outsized, you know, role in the decision, right? But in holistic uh, admissions, what you do is your categories are not the components of the applications, but components of or characteristics of a student who will be successful in your program. So, for example, um, you know, evidence of uh, curiosity in, you know, a particular area of science, for example. And then there are many different places in an application where you can look for that research statement, letters of recommendation, CV, you know, you're not just looking at one thing. And so that means for students who have different, who've come to the the place of applying for graduate school um, can demonstrate, um, you know, their success, their preparation, their interest in those areas in more than one place of the application. So you're, you, you don't have to have 10 different research experiences that you describe. You have one good research experience that, you know, helps somebody answer that question. Then, um, then it, it, it levels the playing field somewhat or decreases the impact of, you know, resource heavy versus not as um, well-researched undergraduate institutions, for example. And so, um, uh, there are other things that graduate program, I mean, admissions committees can do, and we can talk more about that. But, but really, the first step is to change the way we're looking at the applications. There's a lot of great information in graduate applications that tells you about a student's, you know, promise, talent, um, and, uh, and that, that's what we have to focus on. Yeah, I'd like to... Um you know, add a little bit to what Anna was saying. But before I do that, I would like to take half a step back and just um, validate what Aaron was saying about listen to your graduate students. Um, you know, through the process of discontinuing the GRE for doctoral programs at Rackham Graduate School, we had the pleasure of being able to engage in dialogue with our graduate students about this very decision. Um, our Rackham student government passed a resolution um, encouraging the graduate school to um, discontinue the use. And, you know, it was a real privilege for me to be able to work with uh, Jess Miller, um, who's a, a PhD student here at the University of Michigan, um, who made really important contributions, especially in the area of public health and how different graduate programs in public health were using or not using the GRE and surfacing, you know, the scholarship and the literature specifically in that discipline. And, um, you know, as a result of uh, Jess's advocacy, uh, the School of Public Health, whether Rackham or not, was going to make this decision, decided that that was the direction that they're going to go in. And so, um, you know, in, in my experience, I could probably uh, surface at least one really good example where the GRE is a huge mismatch. Um, and Deirdre, you know, you're right. In in high volume programs, often, unfortunately, the way admissions looked was you look at a GPA and you look at a, a GRE score and that's the first cut. Right. And we refer to it as a cut score. Right. And so the literature has been so conclusive around how that has a negative impact with regard to diversity that even the ETS in its own literature, in its own website, uh, discourages that practice. And we know it still happens, right? So 
in my experience, applying as a um, first generation, low income, you know, son of migrant farm worker, uh, students who didn't, I didn't know anything about graduate school. I was applying to um, a master's of, art, uh, master's of fine arts program, right? It's my first terminal degree. As a creative writing MFA, what in the world does my math score on the GRE have to do with my potential success as an art student? But that's the first cut, right? So why are we struggling to have, you know, diversity in the arts at the graduate education level? Because that's the first cut. <laughs> so all your diverse, diverse voices and experiences in the arts are getting filtered out before they're even considered, before they even get to the level where their portfolio um, is being evaluated or their voices are being heard. And unfortunately, when I was applying for my PhD in English, that practice persisted. And so again, what does my math quantitative ability have to do with my ability um, or potential of becoming a good researcher in um, the letters, right? And being a good you know, scholar in translation theory. No, that's, those are completely fair points and honestly points that I've discussed at length since being an undergraduate student. I, I recall getting my first vocabulary uh, GRE box to, to quiz myself and me and my friends actually all went in on purchasing um, one of the online testing things. And so we just went back and did practice tests back and forth because, you know, no one can really afford it. Um, Unless you can, I guess, unless you can't afford it. And so we, we're sharing this. And every time we take this, this test, I'm like, okay, well, these scores look good. Like my math scores are great, um, but these scores are not good. And I'm like, I'm a chemist. How much of this is applicable to what I'll actually be doing in grad school? Like, are they, I actually spoke to one of my professors about this. I was asking him one of the flashcards and I can't remember what word it was, but I asked him if he knew what it meant. And he was like, no. He's like, no, I, I, I learned those for the GRE and I've never used them again. And I was like, so why, why am I studying this? Why is my money going towards this? And I could be instead preparing for the enormous transition that is going to graduate school. Uh, a lot of universities don't even start paying their students until the first couple of months. And so if you go into an out-of-state university, you're looking at housing, you're looking at food costs, you're looking at travel costs all just based on savings that you hopefully have or family that can support you. And, you know, I was, uh, I benefited from having fantastic professors in my last year of um, undergrad. One of my professors said, look, grad school is going to be expensive and you're not going to have any money. If you'd like, you can babysit my kids. And she paid me well over, um, but she should have paid me to babysit those, her wonderful children and those savings paid for, you know, basically my move from Georgia to California, which is a huge move for someone in their early 20s to be making, you know, on their own. And so it's just, yes, I, I'm with you. You're like, what is the relevancy of, of what I'm doing here? And I think that brings up too, I, I mean, a lot of the focus is on, as an individual's perspective, 
um, a barrier that shouldn't be there for you to be able to get into a program. But from the program's view as well, you would think you would want to focus on metrics that are more relevant to student retention and student success. And so they have found that when using these more holistic measures, like was described, there are much higher retention rates as well. And so it's not just the benefit of having more diversity in the, in the student application pools, but also then once starting the program, seeing that there is much more coming out of that program from people who are well-equipped and passionate about what they're trying to do there. Yeah, that's such a great point, Erin. And I think one thing we really benefited from when, when Ethereum and I started this work to get, you know, all the doctoral programs to get rid of the GRE was the fact that for were two things. First, we had some programs who had um, gotten rid of the GRE a number of years. I mean, certainly the social sciences were well ahead of, of the STEM programs on campus. And so they had not used it for many years, but there were also um, a number of STEM programs who had removed the jury and were doing um, focus more on holistic admissions. And they had such strong success with recruiting, you know, fantastic classes of students, you know, good retention rates, um, in some cases, you know, significant uh, increase in diversity. Um, and so that was really helpful to be able to point to these success stories in our university uh, and what those experiences are. And then because we strongly recommended a pandemic pause on uh, GRE scores and either and I did a lot of work to, to help programs do admissions in the absence of the GRE, um, it also meant that hard some hardcore GRE supporters <laughs> found that it really wasn't that big a deal not to have the GRE. <laughs> so <laughs> that those those two things were really important, I think, to us being able to move forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Anna's comments. I think, you know, um, we saw, you know, the University of California system move away from standardized tests uh, at the undergraduate level before the pandemic. Um, but I think this has really accelerated and amplified the conversation because if anything, you know, the trepidation of faculty in graduate admissions was just not knowing, right? Like not knowing how to do holistic admissions um, this feeling like the sky would fall if they didn't have that security blanket of that one number, right? Um, and, you know, COVID happened around the country just because of the purely logistical, practical matter that uh, prospective graduate students couldn't go and take the tests, right, during the, the peak of the pandemic um, in a very pragmatic uh, sort of response most programs across the country suspended the GRE and the sky didn't fall. No, um, I, I agree with that. The, the point of most people don't know what it looks like. You get very used to, okay, I just need to check GRE score, uh, GPA. Yes. No, it's, it's basically swiping left or swiping left, right on, you know, these students, and so most uh, admissions committees are trying to figure out 
what does the holistic approach look like? Do I, is it going to take me longer to process students? Well, more than likely, um, is there a way to expedite this process? I think a lot of those questions are things that are burning in the back of their minds. And it's a lot of those admission committee members, um, I know a few of them personally, are just overwhelmed by other tasks. And so the idea of transitioning into the more holistic approach that then takes more time from them um, is not ideal or is at least not sustainable for that single person to take care of. And so then the departments have to start looking at, you know, hiring additional people or putting extra people on the committee. And it, it, you know, it takes away from resources. And so I think a lot of people who are considering trying to move away from the GRE or trying to convince their institutes to move away from the GRE are struggling with how to go about convincing uh, those officials. And so it would be great to have some input for how you guys, I mean, outside of the things you've already said, or maybe you can reinforce the things you've already said of how to convince them that this is, you know, a viable option. I can talk about what the process here was like, um, because I'm not really a part of the system. So the first step was to figure out how the system worked. Um, and so really that just involved uh, reaching out to a few people. And so I picked the department chair, the admissions committee chair, um, and then graduate affairs. And so they were able to provide um, a concrete answer of what, um, how the bylaws are formed and how they get amended here. And so that at least tells you how to narrow in on your audience of who it's going to be that you have to convince um, in order to make this change. And so here it is, um, the faculty can vote and amend the bylaws with, um, the, with grad studies. So that was what I figured out. And then once we figured that out, um, I got together a small group of um, like five other graduate students. And we just wrote a letter to the faculty um, that said a lot of things we've already talked about, um, about how um, the jury does not effectively um, determine graduate student success and how it is in fact also harmful. Um, and so having that letter, um, we sent it to the faculty and I was allowed to speak at the faculty um, meeting. And so um, I went and presented um, really just the research that we had done on um, statistics on how this does not um, really, it's not really doing any good for our department to have that um, method in place. And then also um, being kind of the student representative um, for this voice, um, I did share um, some responses that I'd gotten from a survey that I had sent out. And the question was just, do you have any comments about the use of the GRE in our admissions? And the responses from the students were to really just a very simple question, um, were really emotional and really um, intense about their experiences and what they had dealt with. Um, things as far as people who had to reapply because they didn't make the cutout score um, the first year, um, uh, currency conversions in different countries that led to not being able to afford um, to take the exam and to send it. And so I think in addition to presenting just the statistics to have the voice from a lot of the students in the department of how it directly impacted them um, really did a lot for convincing the faculty that this wasn't something that was serving our department well. Um, and so they did vote. Um, and I did get word that some people did flip um, in their decision of how they felt about the GRE, um, which was really encouraging. So it's great to have a department who is willing to listen to the students um, and then also who was willing to actually take a vote um, and see and reevaluate that process. And as um, 
was mentioned before too, it was during a pause on the GRE during 2020. And so that was a really opportune time to come in and reevaluate something that, like we said, got paused and nothing happened. It was still fine. And we were still able to conduct admissions that year. And in fact, then we just never put it back into place. Erin, I just want to say, I mean, I was impressed before, but hearing the description of your, of the process that you went through and what you did, I mean, that is remarkable, um, really impressive. And thank you so much for doing that. And uh, I hope, well, I, such a deep change to your department, right? That's really just really fantastic. Um, and I, to build on that a little bit, I, um, I think that, I very naively thought from the standpoint of somebody who was part of two graduate programs that had already gotten rid of the jury, that people just needed it explained again <laughs> about <laughs> how bad the data is. Because how, 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 I, I mean, my thought was, how could anybody look at the, you know, I mean, you can look at the data on the ETS website and say, this is not a good idea. This is not consistent with our values our stated values, you know, as an institution. Um, but, you know, that is not enough. Uh, people have heard those numbers. They've seen those studies and it, you know, they still use it in part through matters of expediency in part, because I think that er the field is somewhat controversial or many of the studies are somewhat controversial because it's a really hard thing to study. Um, I think, at least in terms of effectiveness of a test, predictive measures of a test. Um, and I think some of the things that helped was, some of the things that helped were to emphasize our shared goal of, you know, having outstanding students come to Michigan. Of course, I'm speaking from the faculty perspective that this was our shared goal and our shared value was that, you know, um, with diversity and all its dimensions comes excellence. So like, we don't want to use a tool that, you know, takes that away. And then also in terms of evidence for its lack of effectiveness, I think the most powerful thing was to show that if you uh, pay $2,500 for a prep course, let's say from Princeton Review, they guarantee a five-point score increase if you start with a certain score. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but actually, if you look at the percentile change that that can mean, that can get you, you know, up into the high 90s, right, from a place where you wouldn't make the cutoff. So, how can what somebody learns in a $2,500 prep course, like, um, it really, if it makes that much of a difference, what is it telling you about that person, you know, as a potential scientist or, you know, humanities scholar, or translation scholar? And uh, that really uh, influenced positively, in my view, um, some of the people that had, like, just sort of didn't get the lack of effectiveness argument otherwise. And that turned out, I think, to be a very important point to make. A lot of people just hadn't thought about that and how much it was costing students. Yeah, I want to echo Anna's congrats. Uh, just so remarkably uh, impressed by your advocacy 
and your ability to navigate very complex higher ed systems, right, to um, implement really powerful change that uh, hopefully in the years to come, we see really positive outcomes with regard to um, diversity and, and kind of widening the participation, access and opportunity for um, other students um, like yourself to do amazing things and, and showcase their talents. Um, kind of coming off of what Anna said, you know, we, we more or less had a three-pronged um, rationale for the discontinuation of the, of the GRE uh, with, you know, varying levels of effectiveness or traction. And so I've already talked about the complicated racial history of just standardized testing in this country, even early on the connections to the eugenics movements and, and things like that. Um, we've talked about decades worth of research and scholarship that showed the lack of effectiveness or the lack of correlation to actual student uh, success outcomes. Surprisingly, like both Aaron and um, Anna have pointed out, the, the first two, there was still a great deal of discourse and there's still a great deal of debate. The one that there seemed to be consensus about and very little um, uh, I don't know, debate around was the cost. And so even if you just understand, you know, um, the disproportional um, wealth gap in America and how, you know, wealth in other countries uh, for families that have less access to resources um, affects your potential pool of prospective applicants, you're basically saying, we know this is a really expensive test. And we know that people that come from really wealthy backgrounds have an unfair advantage in terms of their preparation. And we're going to accept that. And we're going to go ahead and, and allow that financial reality and access to resources to perpetuate the wealth of families that have been wealthy, right? Um, we're just going to go ahead and accept that is fundamentally inequitable. Right. And unfair. And so in the international student space, in the low income, low SES domestic space, um, that inequity is unacceptable. Right. And so we need to remove that barrier um, to allow students from all kinds of diverse backgrounds to have an equitable opportunity to have access um, to our graduate programs. We pride ourselves in being the best of the world. We want the best of the world um, to be in our classrooms, to be in our labs, uh, to be in our archives, doing the best possible work. Diversity equals excellence. And if you're you know, uh, eliminating the diversity from the get-go because of these financial barriers, you're doing a disservice to everyone. I think that is a really important point too about it just also kind of communicates the values of a department from the student perspective when you're looking to apply there. If it's very evident from the research that this exam excludes um, large amounts of people and then they still choose to keep it in place. And so that's something that we brought up um, as a discussion in our department too, is that an argument for removing the GRE is that other people are doing it and they're gonna look towards these other programs and say, maybe that's a better fit, maybe that's a better environment and they're gonna go elsewhere instead. And so that's another loss to the excellence of your program. That's that's an excellent point, Erin. And that's not, I, be, I believe that's something I felt, but that's not something I had genuinely thought of as using as a motive to change because that that's accurate. If I 
had been looking at schools. I think even when I was looking at schools, there were certain schools that I just completely decided not to go to because I think they they required a GRE and a subject test. And I was like, I can afford the GRE. I cannot also afford the subject test. Um, and it, it, it disqualifies them. It, it says, okay, you say that you want diversity and yet you do these things that directly contradict that that desire for diversity. And so it feels like it's more for show than anything. And so I, I do like that that last point as a, a good point to add on for people who are trying to move forward with this. And it's been great having the faculty perspective because a lot of times, especially when I'm just talking to grad students, or if it's just me and Aaron talking, we only have the student perspective. And I believe this can be a lot more productive if we have faculty and students working together. Um, the faculty know what's important for the faculty members to hear. Um, whereas for the students, we know how it feels. We're like, these are the problems with this. And if we can all get together and work together towards this, Ethan, like you mentioned, working with your student before, then it's just a more productive pro uh, process. And so I guess kind of on that same vein, we've been talking about just the regular standard GRE. Is there an argument to be made for the GRE subject test? I know people could say, for example, we've been talking about the irrelevancy of the information on the exam, whereas the subject test, for example, for the chemistry subject test, it would cover more things that are considered relevant. We'd go over organic chemistry. We'd actually go over biochemistry. There would be a lot more things that you would directly need to know when you go into graduate school, especially if you have like ACS exams directly after um, being admitted. And so what do you guys think about those? Well, okay, I'll start. <laughs> well, I, I, so if we just start with research data on, you know, studies of the GRE subject test, you know, there's not, there's definitely not as much. So it's hard to say from a, or it's not really possible to say whether or not a GRE subject test score correlates with any kind of metric of success in graduate school. I mean, I think that the fact that the number of GRE subject tests that are now offered through ETS has shrunk to a very small number. I think it's only three or four now over a much wider number probably tells you something about how um, even departments and graduate programs view the subject test. Um, so, uh, so, you know, I, we did not address that in our decision mostly because in this current decision at Michigan, mostly because there wasn't the same kind of scholarship around it. And also because so few, to be honest, places on campus were using it. Um, but it doesn't seem to have a lot of utility, um, certainly not broadly. And I think the comments that we heard in some of our listening sessions um, were that even the subject test covered relatively basic material that, um, again, didn't speak to higher level concepts, you know, that, that, that you might want to know. So. Yeah. Like Anna said, there's, uh, significantly less research and scholarship to sort of, um, go through in terms of the effectiveness of subject, uh, tests, but I would just hold to the fundamental values. For me, this is a values question, right? 
Um, and until these test makers can create a test that in no way, shape or form correlates to race, ethnicity or uh, economic status, right? Like those are the strongest correlations. They, they correlate stronger to race, ethnicity and uh, family wealth than they do to student success outcomes. Until that's not the case, you're essentially putting the thumb on the scales for wealthy families to perpetuate their wealth. Um, and, you know, families that already have access to continue to have an advantage in terms of accessing these opportunities um, over those that, that don't have that generational wealth. Related to that, in the, in the unrealistic future, let's say they were to make the GRE free, would that be a step in the correct direction? Not that I believe that that would happen, but do you think that would be a step in the direction that says, hey, take this exam, it's free, and now we'll, we'll be straight up with you. We're using it as a cutoff. Would that be something that would still work or no? For me, it's about the outcomes. Again, give me a test that doesn't correlate with race, ethnicity, uh, in the case of STEM, you know, often gender and uh, family wealth or zip code. It, as long as that that um, is true and it has any correlation, right, um, scientifically significant correlation to those um, factors, then it's by nature inequitable when it's being applied to uh, admissions. I agree. I just figured I'd ask any extra questions I could think I've heard in the past of, you know, we could just do this or this could happen in the future. It would be fine. Um, I think, too, that doesn't completely remove the issue of wealth from the exam either, because you're able to spend a lot more time preparing if you aren't working multiple jobs or if like there's many other reasons that generational wealth contributes to having a higher score. It's not just that it costs money to take it. It's representative of that, of that in general. That's a very valid point. I remember being an undergrad, I had two and a half jobs. I say half jobs because one was seasonal. And so I only did it from April to June uh, on the weekends, but I was working a lot. I'm paying for things. I didn't really have time to study for extra things. I remember being at my department, like in the building, just studying late into the night. Cause I'm like, okay, I do this now because I've worked in the morning. And so that's a good point. I think we've we've covered a lot of good points. And there were a lot of things that I didn't really consider before. Again, going back to Aaron, how you mentioned students will see people making the changes elsewhere and just go there. Because I didn't realize I had made decisions like that for those reasons. I remember Berkeley doesn't require the chemistry GRE. And so another school asked me, and I was like, if one of the top schools in the country doesn't require me to take this exam, I'm not about to spend another couple hundred dollars just to take it because you want me to. And it felt like a silly reason when I was younger. I felt like I was just being <laughs> indignant. I didn't want to spend any more money. But when you, you phrase it in that light, that's exactly what it is. I saw that elsewhere that wasn't necessary, and I didn't want to put myself in a position where it was or in a place where it was necessary. So I think one of the last things I want to cover is maybe a less, a less morbid, I'll say, discussion of <laughs> what it's currently looking like for grad students. I mean, a lot of uh, departments are 
changing that GRE requirement. And that's fantastic. We love to see it. I remember when it happened at Davis, you know, me and my friends got together and we were like, oh my gosh, Erin's amazing. <laughs> she make this happen. Um, you are amazing, Erin. Uh, thank you for that. And so what are some of the things you're hopeful to see in the future? I mean, of course, if we're getting the GRE removed um, elsewhere, the hope is that we have more diversity in a variety of fields, but do you think it's it's fair to hope for that, that maybe schools could start moving towards that, that GRE list admission? Sure. I guess um, in, in the wake of the GRE being removed, really kind of touched on what we hope to see is just that um, students from more diverse backgrounds in the program and um, like I mentioned before to higher rates of graduation from these programs and students that are um, really invested in in the program for a lot of these holistic reasons like um, their passion towards the subject um, or their perseverance their drive um, and not just about a, a numerical cutoff um, and in addition, just to allow people to um, be able to pursue careers in the things that they are most passionate about, rather than having to do what is going to be financially feasible or just falling into, um, I guess, the most practical job. You know, I'm really lucky to be on the other side of a graduate program where I'm doing something that I absolutely love. And there are many barriers to that. And so I hope that people get to choose really what they're most passionate about and that this isn't a barrier um, to them doing that. Uh, that was really uh, lovely, Erin, what you just said. And I, I think, you know, I completely agree. I, I mean, I, I think in, in my experience in working on this project and also working on holistic admissions, um, I think, you know, one of the, one of the positive aspects is that this has been a really great way to have deep conversations with faculty about like what characteristics really are important. Like what, what do students really need uh, to be successful in their program? And that's, that's important for admissions and looking at applications. But the thing is, once you've identified those things, then you can start looking at say your requirements in your graduate program. And are those actually consistent with, your stated, uh, your stated goals about uh, what students are supposed to learn. Are your, you know, are you uh, letting students know, making the expectations transparent so that students, um, you know, the hidden curriculum, uh, you know, there's not a significant hidden curriculum. Because if we have the best holistic admissions, you know, process in the world and have, you know, the excellence and diversity that we want, if we have a curriculum, a support structure that's based on, you know, um, outdated notions <laughs> of excellence and performance, then we failed because that means we are not going to have a climate of success and we brought students in under kind of false pretenses. So, um, so I think, you know, there is data showing that with holistic admissions practices, you do have more diverse classes. Um, and so that's really positive. And it means that we need to work even harder on all the other components of, um, of graduate school uh, to, 
to make sure that it, this also means better student success. Yeah, I you know can't agree more with both Aaron and Anna, and I think Aaron articulated really well what my hope and, and aspiration is around, you know, creating greater uh, access and opportunity for more diverse um, students. Um, and Anna, if I can add anything, I I'm looking forward actually to the challenge of pivoting to these other areas, right? So if we get rid of this one number that has created such obstacles for the diversity and excellence um, of our graduate education um, programs and community, then we can really start focusing on the things that are now being um, lifted up and surfaced as having potential um, bias in the process, like access to undergraduate research, or like having relationships with faculty who can write strong letters of recommendation. Because one speaks to sort of the systemic racism and sexism um, as it's sort of codified right now in the process. Um, the other speaks to having equitable experiences to thrive, right? And so um, looking at universities like the University of Michigan and our undergraduate research opportunity program, how do we make sure that students from diverse backgrounds have equitable access to that kind of experience? And, you know, I'm working directly with the director on, on those kinds of issues, right? So I know the commitment here, but across the country and also looking at institution type, right? Because there, not every school is as robust in its research um, opportunities as a UC Davis or a University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And so, you know, depending on the institution type, minority-serving institutions, smaller liberal arts um, colleges that may not have the ro robust infrastructure, but actually have the diverse population that we want to see in our graduate student communities because we know they can contribute so much. How do we then engage in those conversations to open the doors of access and opportunity to undergraduate research, these, um, you know, really great experiences uh, with faculty members? Because in the end, we know that those are the high impact practices that lead to student success. Can I add one more thing? to that and yet you're thank you Ethan you know I agree with you <laughs> you know 100% and um, and the literature is there and the biomedical sciences and you know particular um, some important studies that have come out of UCSF show showing this and I think that the undergraduate research experience is such a uh, like good topic for discussion with faculty because you know it can also be used as a sort of cutoff or ranking method, right? So whether or not somebody's had three different research experiences versus one or has had two or three years of continuous deep research as opposed to, you know, two summers. And it, it doesn't really matter. You need to have, you know, if it doesn't really matter in terms of how students do in graduate school in general, right? Um, it's just a filtration. It's often a filtration me uh, mechanism again, right? But but then that again rewards people who come from more privileged background from higher resource, and and you're you're losing talent, you know, just with that view of undergraduate research. But if you change your application to say choose one research experience that you've had, and 
make sure you talk about these parts of the research, then you've done something to both level the playing field because all you need is that one research and you've told people what you're going to be looking for in that research statement. But you're also giving yourself a lot more information because rather than listing all the things you've done, you're asking you're asking someone to tell you about like what they found most interesting, what they thought the most interesting finding was. Um, and that's a, you know, that in my opinion, that's a much better way to evaluate a, a student and also a much more equitable way to, to do the process. Yeah, I do like that that you both mentioned a focus too on, in addition to um, just the recruitment aspect, then the retention aspect as well. And I think that a lot of issues have been brought up recently in um, in graduate studies. And um, like Deidre mentioned that a lot of students aren't paid for uh, two months or a month when they show up here and have to take a bunch of exams, but we're living and working for free. Um, and then cost of living adjustments in general for graduate students as we see inflation raises and our stipends are not raising along with that. And so I think a lot of these um, issues can then be addressed because like you said, if we're recruiting people into programs where we want diversity and um, then we are recruiting under these false pretenses where then the students are not treated appropriately once they get here, then, then that's an issue too. Um, so moving the focus as we do correct a lot of these things in admissions toward retention as well, I think it's really important. I agree, you've, all three of you have brought up very valid points and I hope that, you know, whoever ends up listening, listening to this, it makes them think about the importance of some of the things we've brought up and then how they themselves can go forward and make changes um, accordingly. So. One thing in particular that I found important, I want to say in my career, but I'll, really my life has been finding mentors, really good mentors who feel invested in my career and me as a person. Because a lot of the things that you know people gave me accolades for when I got into grad school or were things that I only did because I found good mentors. I had poor physics grades uh, and I wanted to do better in physical chemistry. I went and talked to my physics professor and she said, you understand physics, you know, I feel like you get it conceptually, but you have trouble with the actual math. And I'm like, okay, well, what do I do when my exam is math? And she was like, come with me, we'll do research. And I did physics research with her for three years just because she brought it up. And then because I did physics research with her, I ended up uh, saying, okay, research is kind of cool. I'll do this research over here and then I'll do this one over there. And so by the time I got to grad school, I had multiple years of undergraduate research and they were like, yes, this is actually one of the reasons why we wanted you to join. And I was like, well, no one told me I had to do this. Uh, it wasn't mentioned anywhere. And I went to a very small liberal arts college. So we had like three chemistry majors and our professors weren't really geared towards doing undergraduate research. I just lucked out that some of my professors were interested in doing research with their undergrads just because. And so a lot of students aren't aware of these things. And so one thing that I try to do is convince people to mentor students from a young age. So I have, you know, high school students that I talk to, middle school students, or mostly families <laughs> that I talk to at that point from middle school. But students of all ages can be mentored in at least some capacity. Um, I've had high school students work in the lab 
and they've been just as confident, if not more than some of my undergraduate students. It really just it depends on the amount of energy you put into them and the receptiveness of that student. So there are things that all of us can do to, to help move this process along. And so it's been very good to hear this conversation and learn some other things that I can do. And hopefully you've gotten a chance to learn from one another as well. Yeah, if I may, you know, just share from my experience, I started as an engineering major. And I had a very inspiring English professor who took an interest in me, believe it or not. It was just, you know, after class, that faculty member coming up to me and saying, hey, kid, you know that poem that you wrote in my class? It was pretty good. And I changed my <laughs> uh, major from computer science and engineering to creative writing and poetry just on that comment. But it was the enduring relationship and the encouragement to do poetry readings and to publish my poems that actually got me on the right trajectory and path to go to graduate school, right? Um, so that's the thing that excites me about, you know, discontinuing the GRE because we can get past this number. We can get past this obstacle and we can start the conversations that really matter. What are we doing to connect with our students? What are we doing to inspire them? What are we doing to, um, you know, engage in their success and, um, you know, creating new opportunities, um, new dreams and supporting them and achieving them? Okay, I think we have covered everything. I really appreciate all of your opinions, your input. It has been extraordinarily helpful. And I hope that someone can listen to this and take the information they've gained from this and start implementing it into their graduate program or whatever program they, you know, they see fit to start trying to facilitate change. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Exploration Science. As always, we welcome your feedback and suggestions for topics that you'd like to see covered. You can leave those suggestions in the comments below or tag us on LinkedIn. You can also find this podcast available as a YouTube series by searching Exploration Science. Thanks again for tuning in.